Do you have a question already? Yeah. Uh, would Would you mind holding it close? Perfect. Really? Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is the way to This is the way to get the good sound, though, for sure. Well, my voice has been known to not carry very well. It's kind of a high voice. Uh, people refer to it as a tin voice. Uh, in the positive sense, maybe you could say it's a soft voice. What I was saying about the, the Qigong and Qigong meditation, and, and this is where I think confusion comes in. It's, you call it Qigong meditation. Meditation implies something very passive and very soft and very just sit there unmoving and let something happen, kind of an allowing. Like you mentioned Zen, I think maybe some of that type of meditation is like that. And I think the Qigong, really to put the term meditation with it, isn't exactly right because the Qigong is very active. There are points of concentration inside the body. You're moving energy inside the body. It's deliberate. And sometimes there is physical movement and changes of posture that go along with the Qigong. So we use the term Qigong meditation, but I'm not sure that's really accurate to say that. The positive side of using meditation is that it is something that you practice and you practice regularly and you practice every day and has accrued benefits as well as immediate benefits. Good, good, good afternoon, evening, or morning, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Design Exchange. I'm Thomas Grove, and with me today is my Kung Fu master. So Master Malika is a... Is it a grandmaster of Shaolin Tiger Kung Fu at this point? Yes, ninth level. As well as uh, pretty high ranking in Sui Chao? Seventh level in Sui Chao. And a uh, fairly accomplished guitar player and Qigong practitioner <laughs> as well. Guitars in the old days. I've heard stories of, of your guitar and uh, that you were quite, quite talented at playing guitar. Well... Legend always exceeds reality. <laughs> How long have you been involved with martial arts? Since I was about 10 years old. I'm almost 65 now. So I started young. And you started in boxing? Boxing and judo, because that's really all there was back then. There wasn't karate or kung fu or anything. There were no schools. There were no styles or practitioners. There was almost literally nothing. Kind of what was your journey from these early days of boxing and, and judo? Yeah, boxing and judo. At what point, like how long did you do that? And then when did you start discovering other styles that you thought would be worth exploring? The, the judo was something I did at the YMCA and boxing was something that my dad sponsored me in because my dad was an amateur boxer, golden gloves boxer. And there's five boys in my family. So we had some pretty advanced in-house fighting going on there. <laughs> it was something I learned for self-defense and for fun. And I did that for a couple years. And then there started to be the beginnings of karate schools and taekwondo schools. And I would call it mixed martial arts because I'm not sure any of those were legitimately Japanese or Korean styles. They were just whoever opened up whatever, and then you could take it if you dared. So from about 12 on to about 15 or 16, it was just whatever was there you took. At what point did you become acquainted with uh, Richard Greenlee and Daniel Wang? 
Well, those two have met, and they're on good terms, but they're not really the same uh, lineages. When I was in college still, and I was studying martial arts at OU, I even when I came back on vacation during the summer, I heard about you know Greenlee's Kung Fu School, Grandmaster Greenlee, Iron Tiger Kung Fu. And the second I heard about it, I said, I want to do that. But I was still in college. I was at OU. So when I came back in 76, 77, the first thing I did is go down to the school and enroll and start taking formal Kung Fu, Shaolin Tiger Kung Fu. That was about 76, 77. And then um, your introduction to Sui Chao and Tai Chi? That was about, uh, I think, 82, 83. Um, I had gotten pretty far in the Shaolin Kung Fu. Grandmaster Greenlee didn't operate that branch at that time. And he was just strictly working in Circleville. And I didn't have the wherewithal to go to Circleville and, and, and make him get back into it and start a school. He was just teaching at his house at that time. And so I, I wanted to go strictly into classical, traditional Kung Fu. And I read an article on Inside Kung Fu about Sui Jiao, Daniel Wong, Grandmaster Chong. And at the end, it said he was a professor at Ohio State. And I got right on my Peugeot and pedaled my bicycle down there to Ohio State to his office and beat on his door. <laughs> he probably thought I was a nut. You have to be a nut to be good at something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember reading that article as the last article, maybe even the last page on the in the magazine. And at the end, it's at gave this little description, said he was a professor at Ohio State University. And I literally closed that magazine, got on my Peugeot and rode down Lane Avenue. I lived in Grandview at the time. I rode down Lane Avenue to his office and went up the side stairs there, waited for someone to leave and then went in the door. It was the old Larkins Hall back before they, the modern thing they have now. Someone went out and I went in and I went straight to his office, beat on the door and he came out and I said, would you teach me Sui Jiao and Tai Chi? I, I want to learn the classical style. And, uh, that was the beginning of it. During the, the Chuck Norris and Bruce Lee days, there was probably a certain amount of buzz about martial arts. And people was like, hey, I want to learn that and try and find some school somewhere. But these days, there's like money in martial arts, in mixed martial arts, right? Yeah. yeah I watched those movies while I was in college, the Bruce Lee movies. Chuck Norris was, had a cameo in one of them. And I, I love those movies. They were part of the inspiration that I had. Before that, it was Man From U.N.C.L.E. on TV. I saw Bruce Lee and uh, The Green Hornet when I was young. So those things influenced me. And I didn't think the really big martial arts buildup started until maybe the late 80s. And then schools started popping up all over the place. And then the success and the rise of MMA uh, that really surprised me, to be honest, because I didn't think people would want to really get in the octagon, in the ring, and really fight like that full contact. We had little cults, little groups of people that wanted to go extra hard and, and fight. And we had some, some pretty intense kung fu matches where people were clawing and poking at the eyes and biting and doing strangleholds and joint locks and ground fighting. We were doing that back in the 70s and 80s, too. I, we didn't have the technique of the ground fighting like what they have today, but certainly the desire was there. And a lot of times our teachers would just, you know, if you want to do that, go ahead. But it surprised me that people wanted to go that hard. And with those, those little safety guidelines, really, I didn't expect to see it become so popular. 
I wasn't really aware of it when it first kind of started coming up. Like the the closest I saw of it was seeing some like semi-professional kickboxing matches somewhere in Ohio. Um, so I just recently went back, maybe two, three weeks ago, I went back and I watched UFC 1. Oh, the old days. Yeah, on uh, on YouTube. It's on <laughs> YouTube now. Pitting all the styles against yeah. each other. That was interesting. I actually like that tournament format better than like a one. I, I like the idea that, okay, if you can survive this, let's see how you do in the next, against the next guy. Yeah, but. I always like the old way of doing things better than the new way of doing things. Obviously, I'm a, I, a kung fu guy, so I always will like the old way of doing things. Even when it comes to MMA, I like the old MMA better when they were fighting in different ways, different styles. Now it seems like they've adopted more or less the same style of stand-up and more or less the same style of ground grappling submission. And for me, it takes some of the excitement out of watching it. I liked seeing the styles pitted against each other and knowing that this person wasn't going to fight just like that person. That was part of the fun. Mm. People, a lot of times will come to the school and they'll say, do you do MMA? And I'll say, no, this is not an MMA school. Uh, this is a classical, traditional Kung Fu school. We don't compete with other schools in fighting arts. And if we did, and we sometimes do, then it would be Swai Jiao, Chinese throwing and wrestling, or it would be Sancho, which is the... The full contact version of Swajiao includes punching and kicks. doesn't have elbows and knees, but you're allowed to use your legs and forearms in different and unusual ways that still make it pretty interesting. It's stylized, and people from different arts, some Shaolin guys, Choi Foot guys, Bakwa guys, Xing Yi guys, they try their hand, and they try to employ their style in the San Show. And to me, that makes it interesting, just like it did in MMA when they had different stylists fighting each other. And there's different styles of Swai Jiao, too. But in the San Show, people fight according to their style, their own school, or their own lineage. And I like that aspect of it. The more it becomes just boxing and kickboxing with wrestling thrown in, the less interested I am. It's become too generic, in my opinion, and I like it when the rules force people to use their classical, traditional training. It makes it fun. It makes it interesting. I mean, people are supposed to be watching it. Otherwise, you're just in a wrestling room with three or four people, and you know, I've been down that road many times in the past. So if it's going to be a spectator sport, then I think we should make it interesting and keep it interesting. And I, of course, like the old Sancho. If I was to suggest a rule change as a game designer, <laughs> if I was to suggest a rule change to the current MMA, I would want uh, a cage on only half the ring <laughs> and then the other half to be a ring out like you could fall off the platform oh. kind of situation. Because if you're only in a ring out situation, then the game could become, a, could become about, can I push this guy off the platform? You know, and if you're only in a cage situation, it can be, can I kind of corner this guy and to have to deal with both those potentials, maybe even have like, and maybe even have like a bar on part of the ring to like simulate, well, what if you were in a, in a, you know, it have some maybe uneven terrain at some point, you know, just to. <laughs> <laughs> I like your ideas. I think you might increase the rate of injury, unfortunately. But that would kind of be like Sancho where you're theoretically, and it's not often that you're actually on a lay tie or the platform. 
And in the old days, they said that platform was nine feet high, or some people say it was even 10 or 15 feet high, which if you fell off, it might kill you. But I think most people say it was seven to 10 feet high. And then in modern times, it's about two feet high. And then they put uh, mattresses around the outside of it. So it still does hurt to get thrown off. And it's a little bit humiliating to get thrown off of it, but they don't often have a lay tie. And so they just put duct tape around the outside of the wrestling mat. And if you happen to put your foot outside of that duct tape, then that's three points. That's as if you were thrown off the lay tie. And I tell my guys, well, it's pretty tough to fight the guy in front of you and watch where your toe was going back there. And you're not really going off the platform. You're just touching a piece of duct tape. But that's part of it, the simulating. If they would actually employ something like that and have half of it open... But then you're getting into what do you get out of it? Did you get points out of that? Do you just get extra credit because you drove the guy off of the octagon? I would go with uh, yeah. video game rules where, <laughs> where there's the... three rounds. And if, and, if you, and if you get knocked out of the, of the ring, you lost that round. That's what I would like to see. <laughs> I think that's a good idea. And I, I think from the viewer's perspective, to have it be open... Now, I haven't been to uh, many live MMA events where they actually had an octagon. A lot of local events just have a boxing ring because that's what they can cart around from place to place. That's what the promoters can afford. And people are somewhat, you know, locked into that's what they kind of expect when they go to see a, a tough man contest or a fight, Sancho MMA. They're used to looking at the, at the ring, not the octagon. But I think it would be great for the viewer because that would be open. So half of the audience would have upgraded seats. They'd be looking at the open side. Mm -hmm. And from a tactical point of view, if you drive a person off something, they lose their balance and they go down, that's, that's, that's that much more impact when you hit the ground. So if you're doing Swijau and you get a guy near that open side and then you throw him, not only is he being crashed into the ground, but he's going three feet further down and maybe he's hitting a harder surface when he goes down. And there's always an edge, and any edge can be used in a combat situation, too, to weaken or injure your opponent. So I like your idea, but I think it might increase injuries. <laughs> you know, the risk of injury is one of the main things that kept me from competing mm -hmm. in any kind of serious way in martial arts. The first Great Lakes Swai Chow tournament that I participated in, the next day I woke up feeling like I'd been hit by a bus. <laughs> you know, I couldn't move, I couldn't move a muscle. Uh, and I wasn't actually really expecting, expecting it to be that traumatic. Well, you did a great job in that match. I remember you were down and you came back, you had some spectacular saves and throws and I'll never forget that match, really, because I was kind of thinking, oh, Thomas, he's really, he's having a tough time. And then you made this miraculous comeback and you managed to win the match. I thought, well, that really says something about him. It was very exciting. <laughs> the thing that's weird weird, or maybe interesting about competing is I, 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 I felt that I was a fairly practiced uh, martial artist. Right. I mean, I've, I, I, I feel like I have a very strong foundation mm -hmm. thanks to you, You're Welcome. but still, once you're actually in a competition situation, you're not just loading up your training partner and being kind and you're, you know, it, there's some things that you can't learn really probably in a, until you go into the full intensity situation. 
you know, Swigel's rough, and you found that out in person. I tell people that when we're training on throws or controls, whatever, and they, I think they go, yeah, yeah, it looks rough. But it's when you're in there experiencing it, what you're allowed to do in Swigel, you're allowed to do 100%. And strength has never been a dirty word in Swigel circles. People train to become strong. They reduce their weight to the minimum. And, you know, based on Grandmaster Chong Dongsheng, who was unbelievably powerful, even as an, as an older gentleman, unbelievably strong, the Swigel fighters are nothing if not super strong. And they not only can resist everything that you're doing, they have Tai Chi background. They can anticipate what you're going to do, use it against you, or they can resist what you're going to do. They can overpower what you do. They can interrupt what you're going to do. And it just makes life miserable if you're out there competing in Swai Jiao because most of the people in the United States trained or were trained by someone who learned from Grandmaster Chong Dong Shang. So you're always fighting people that are not just pushovers, but really tough, really strong, hard-nosed people that have as much or maybe more technique than you. And you're going head to head. It's rough. And I tell people that you don't have to compete, but you'll probably get an edge over the people that don't compete. The risk that you take is the risk of being injured because it's very rough and the people fight really hard. And it's pretty much just like being in three or four fist fights on a Friday night and waking up Saturday morning. What I wasn't really expecting was the uh, cardiovascular demand of it. You know, uh, after the first round, I was already winded. And then it's how do you keep going in the next round? <laughs> you know, <laughs> when, when you can barely think your thoughts anymore or, or make the moves you want to make because you just don't have the, the gasoline in there anymore. Yeah, I'm going to complain for a minute because uh, I like the old rules, of course. I always like the old better than the new. The old rules were based on what Grandmaster Chong learned and grew up with, and that was that when a person was thrown, that round ended. And then another round began, and when the person was thrown to the ground or knocked to the ground, then that round ended and was a best two out of three. So they could start with 64 contestants and then maybe even less than a half a minute, they could be down to 32 contestants. So they could go through the whole tournament in an hour. They, of course, they had to have 32 judges to do the first round of fighting. And that way you could go through a whole tournament. And, and I actually did this a few times. I tried to win quickly, so I didn't expend too much energy. So I had more for the second round and the third round. And you could have a total of two, three minutes on the mat fighting and win the tournament that way. Because the old saying was, as you touch, you throw. So you didn't mess around. You got in there. And that was supposed to develop your street efficiency or your self-defense ability to use your controlling and grappling and throwing methods quickly. As you touch, you throw. But everyone didn't agree with me. And some people held and they stalled. And they used up three minutes in the first round, three minutes in the second, three minutes in the third. And that was nine minutes with a minute rest in between. Then they went to two overtimes. So the tournaments, instead of being combat efficiency, became really long and really boring. The skill level wasn't there. The aggressiveness wasn't there. And so all the rules have changed to kind of make it more exciting and interesting and put that, that activity, that aggression, that skill level back in. And that means now you have... Uh, two two minute rounds most of the time, and two minutes is a long time when you're out there. Yeah, <laughs> it isn't to people watching, but it is to you. 
So after I watched UFC one, one of the main bouts there was Ken Shamrock uh, losing to the Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner. And several UFCs later, there was like a comeback rematch. Oh. <clears throat> and um, I think the rounds were half an hour. And they locked up seconds into the game. And they stayed locked up for half an hour straight. And then it went to overtime. And they stayed, you know, they finally, it was only once they broke them up and they could do striking again, then like the situation changed. But I was looking at like, that has to be, exhausting because the Ken Shramak I'm sure knew if he moves from this guarded position at all, he's done. So like it was everything he could do to kind of just maintain his, just stay where he is right now until the time limit ran out for half an hour later. <laughs> and and uh, I didn't really envy that, but I did kind of uh, admire the tenacity, <laughs> but, uh, but, it, but it was not, it's not interesting at all from a spectator standpoint, you know, that's funny because it reminds me of a match I had in a Kung Fu school probably at least 30 years ago, if not more. The guy's name was Moran Lowe. And we got tangled up somehow. We went down to the ground. And for whatever reason, we were determined that we were going to ground fight. And so we were clawing and kicking and biting in each other. And then we got tangled up. I don't know what position we were in, but we got to the point where neither one of us could do anything. And then we started to get tired and then we both locked in and we must've held that position. I don't think it was 30 minutes, but it was 15 or 20. I guess the other students must've fallen asleep or gone out to lunch or something. Cause we were still <laughs> laying on the floor. <laughs> and finally one of us managed to crawl out of the heap and throw a punch or a kick and get back on our feet. But then you, you feel so uncoordinated when you get back up cause you've exhausted so much of your energy that a lot of times your first punch or kick are loose and out of control and kind of spastic. One of the things I've appreciated the most from having a, kung fu training or martial art training childhood was I feel as an adult even after years of not doing any formal training I move in interesting ways <laughs> you know whether that's getting out of bed carrying a full bowl of water across a room and uh, potentially stepping on something and having to deal with that or I, I still rock climb oh. weekly and I've just the, the, the way of placing my feet or my arms curving or twisting and turning. I, I, don't know, I, I think that I'm potentially moving in ways that I wouldn't intuit if I hadn't had that kind of training as a, as a child. Everything is a technique is the saying. So you put a dish away, it's a technique. You pull a fork out of the door, it's a technique. You close the door on the dishwasher, it's a technique. That way you're always practicing your Kung Fu, you're always training. I love it when I come to like a heavy door, like a, a swinging door that's kind of got a lot of weight to it. <laughs> and I try to use kind of my, my core to... Yeah, people think I'm nuts, the things that I do, the way I push with my finger toward my palm, or sometimes when I go out a door at, the, at, at a department store, I put my foot on the door and just push it open with the ball of my foot, and then I try to walk out without it touching my hands, my elbows, or my shoulder. 
I think people must look at me and think, what's wrong with that old man? He's nuts. But to me, that just makes life interesting and fun. When I stand in line at the grocery store, I stand there and I do Qigong while I'm there. So internally, I'm moving even though my body's standing there or I'm in line at the bank. I hit up a minimal stance that I know is training my legs, but nobody else does. And I like to make a technique out of just about everything. And that's the saying, once you know Kung Fu, then everything becomes a technique. My problem is when I'm standing in line at the bank, I'll hit a stance that's not minimal. <laughs> you know, I, and then, uh, and I, and then like whoever I'm with will look at me and they're like, what's, what, what's wrong with you? Why can't you just act normal? Well, some of the Kung Fu actually came from techniques in a person's occupation. When Dr. Wong was over with one of the teams in China competing, he came up against a guy whose daytime job was, you know, rolling out the noodles. And he probably did that eight or 10 hours a day. And a guy had incredible abs and, and great strength on his upper body. And from doing this rolling motion. And when he got hold of uh, Dr. Wong, he just, whoo, he had so much power, he just pulled him forward and almost flung him between onto the ground, onto his stomach. And he did that to a lot of guys in that tournament. So sometimes the person's work is the Kung Fu technique. Uh, Grandmaster Chong used to put a broom on his back and tie it to his belt so the bristles would go up. And then he would practice bowing where he leaned forward and sweep the floor by bending forward so much that, that those bristles would hit the floor. He'd sweep his, uh, his uncle's shoe store that way. And that increased his bowing ability so much that he would just grab someone and turn and then bow and they'd just be flung over his shoulders. You, uh, I remember a story you told me of him when he was a, a child and his uncle or grandfather was training him and he would kick up grasshoppers. <laughs> You know, there's some kind of like marching kick. Yeah, there's a, a, a locking step and a swinging step and a marching kick. And one of the movements would go into the tall grass and make the grasshoppers jump up. And then the marching kick was very sudden. And then he'd have to kick hard enough that it would shatter the grasshoppers and have the tar all over his legs and his pants when he'd get home. One leg would brush the tall grass and then the other would kick with such velocity that it would break the grasshoppers in half. Have you ever considered uh, writing down the tale of... Like, because he has so many... Uh, I, I, I only pause there because I don't want to pronounce his name incorrectly. Chong Dongsheng. So the tale of Chong Dongsheng. There's, I, I think... I've heard you say before, like, you could fill a book with stories of him. And I would like to see that. I would like to actually read this this uh, book of these kind of ancient Chinese training and trials and tribulations. Well, there again, I'm old-fashioned. I try to tell the stories, and hopefully people will hear the stories, remember the stories, and they'll retell them. They might get altered a little bit along the way, which wouldn't happen so much with writing. But I will eventually have to write more of them down so they don't get changed or altered or pieces of them forgotten. Uh, <clears throat> the story about Master Chong and the broom and the grasshoppers, and there was one more that goes right with that. <clears throat> he would take his leg and tangle it around saplings and then rip those up out of the ground to practice his leg tangling throw. And then he would do tree hanging where he'd wrap 
his leg around a larger tree and then wrap his arm around the tree, put his other leg out and suspend himself three or four feet in the air like that and just hold on to that for like 15 minutes, not just for a second to say, look how strong I am, but 10 or 15 minutes. And yeah, those so kind of training comes training at, at some point in, in, in along those probably about minute six, it becomes training. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're training for and 10 he, minutes. He used a well to train too. He had, had a well. And then the way that he pulled the rope and pulled the water up, sometimes the water wasn't heavy enough. So they used water and rocks. And then sometimes I suppose they had other things they put in it for people that weren't as strong. I don't know if sand is heavier than water or rocks, but they put different materials in the well. And then the way that he pulled the rope and pulled the water up was a training method too. So that's more of everything is a technique. I'm coming up the stairs is a technique. Where do you put your hands when you're coming up the stairs? You hold on the rail or you put them out in front of your face or put them opposite to you, the way you move. What's your favorite way to go up the stairs? With my hands out in case I trip. <laughs> then I turn my head to the side. My hands will hit first. I won't bust out my teeth or break my nose. So it might look kind of weird, but it's very practical. From all the styles you've studied, would you say there's something that you find to be common to all of them? Do you have any gold, gold, what's your biggest golden nuggets of synthesis that's come out of your, your background? I think it's that you have to have a strategy, not just technique. I had really good technique from an early age and even into my 20s. And I don't think I really understood the value of strategy and fusing strategy with technique until it was... In my late 30s, I really began to see it's not just how good you are, how strong or how fast, or this technique is that technique. You have to have a unified way to apply them when you're under duress. So what is your strategy? What's your approach? How do you plan to win? Is it just speed and power and technique or, oh, I don't know, I'll, I'll figure it out when I'm in the midst of it? Strategies have something in advance so you know where to go. Hey, you have a lesson? Oh. Uh, lesson with is is he the teacher or the student? He's a teacher. That's Tayo Morang, world champion. He's, nice to meet can you. Can do a few minutes of podcast with Tayo Morang. Have a seat. Tayo Morang is in the house. It's the world swijout champion. Oh, hi, Thomas Grove. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Uh, Tayo. Yes, Tayo. I think actually a couple years ago when I briefly came back, uh, I may have met you in in, in the class. It's, it's possible. I've been uh, with the school for 16 years now. Wow. Probably started coming pretty soon after I stopped coming. <laughs> we just traded places. Uh, so, Swaijiao World Champion? Yeah, back in uh, 2014, uh, joined the U.S. team, went over to Rome, fought uh, with the international and, and won the world championship there. What kind of weight class was that? Uh, that was the... The featherweights weighed about 132 going into that. So, yeah, I was, I was the heaviest for, for that weight division, but there was a bunch of small guys there. What, uh, you, you, you're training Sui Chao and Shaolin. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Which one do you like more? Oh. Now that's, that's, that's not a fair question, but, uh. That's a very difficult question because I think both arts are, they're very unique 
and they both have different purposes. You know, Swai Jiao is a, a grappling and throwing art, so it's most useful when you get very close to your opponent, whereas Shaolin is before you even get to that point. So putting them together is where you get kind of more of a, an ultimate form of, of fighting. It's being able to fight with both the Shaolin and the Swai Jiao. I think uh, probably Swai Jiao might be king because if all else fails and someone gets close to you and you, you need to use that then, then that's probably what I think is uh, is my favorite. My, what I would suggest is a, a better art, so to speak. Although, you know, different people have different skills, and so people are going to be able to use different martial arts more effectively than others. Yeah, maybe different body types as mm-hmm. well. Exactly. I think that's why there are so many different martial arts, different styles of martial arts. Is everyone's different, everyone's body, everyone's personality is a more aggressive person does more aggressive fighting better and a more defensive person does more defensive fighting better. So that's why I think there are so many different forms of martial arts still. This is how you know that Master Malika is a master because <laughs> he skillfully redirected <laughs> the podcast. What, 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 there must be like a Tai Chi phrase for this. Well, Tai is the next generation coming up and you have to hand everything off. You just don't keep it to yourself for all time. Everything... Grandmaster Chong passed down knowledge to myself and Daniel Wong, and my job is to pass down knowledge to the next generation, and it's fitting that he came in because he's the next generation, and he has his own perspective on the knowledge, his own explanations, and his own experience. His skill as a fighter, he exceeded me as a competitor, which makes me feel great. I was able to help him do more than I could do. As a coach, I think I fulfilled my ultimate purpose. But as a competitor, national championship, I made that. International, no, second place. So, Sifu Mareng taught me, and I'm very proud. I, I think that's that's one thing that I've tried to take into my teaching as, as a martial artist is I think the best scale of how well you know anything, especially martial arts, is how well you're able to teach it. Because if you can teach someone and get them to you know, accomplish something more than yourself, then that shows how much you know that you're able to you know, explain it in ways that other people are able to succeed with it. He's a good teacher. Yeah. And I don't mean it within the context of martial arts, because I've gone to schools for learning math and stuff, and I've uh, studied other martial arts. And as a teacher, you are... You just have a way of uh, encouraging, I would say. Like, you know, some, some, I had a uh, drawing teacher in middle school. I was pretty okay at drawing. I never wanted to draw again after that guy. <laughs> it took me like five, uh, six years or something to ever want to draw again after I had, I had been with that guy. Well, you have to make it interesting. You have to keep it interesting. And what keeps it interesting is when you love Kung Fu, then you're always in the Kung Fu element. Like I said, everything is a technique. And then when you love Kung Fu, you think about it and you think about how to explain it. And you think about what you like about it, what you've done, what made you a success, what you taught others and how they did with it. And it just always keeps you involved in the art. And that love for Kung Fu, it just keeps shining and people... They realize that you're really into what you're doing, and hopefully they feel that you're knowledgeable, 
and you're able to impart that to them. And then they start to love Kung Fu. And then you've got this whole school of people that all like and love the same thing and want to practice. And that's what keeps it going, keeps the ball rolling, keeps everybody motivated. And everybody just keeps getting better, moving up and up and up. So maybe someday we'll get the Kung Fu back to where it used to be in the era of Grandmaster Chong Dong Sheng. Maybe someday or maybe his students will be that caliber. Have you heard stories about Chong Dong Shen? Oh, for, for the entire time I've been at the school, I've, I've heard all the stories about Chong Dong Shen and, and Dr. Wong. And yeah, it's, it's been definitely a real inspiration. Do you use any of the weird training methods, like for strength training, balance training methods? Uh, yeah, all the traditional postures, some of the different uh, implements using the bricks and all that. I, I have definitely trained with those a lot. So if, uh, for those that don't know, there's like, you'll take cinder blocks, hold them in your, in your hands and twist them as you're standing on one leg. Brick and twisting, reed twisting, sw uh, swinging the various poles and the long bag, the short bag filled with lead shot. He can demonstrate them. <laughs> yeah. So what is this training and what are you thinking about while you do this? So I'm focusing on grabbing over the top, focusing on getting my grip, timing, balance, keeping the momentum moving. That's one of the big reasons why we use the bags is working on that continuous motion, continuous momentum. And a big thing with grip is especially in Swai Jiao, when you're having to hold on to people and control them for throws, having a good grip is vitally important. If you don't have a good grip, then you're not able to control them and you're not able to throw them. It's very rough on the joints. So how strenuous is this? It's pretty strenuous. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you're picking up how I've started breathing a lot harder since I started doing this just now because I'm engaging not just pretty much all the muscles in my arms, but also through my core. My legs are bent, so I'm engaging my legs also. So it's everything I'm really using all together at once. So it, can, it can be very strenuous, especially for extended periods of time, which, you know, Mashmalik has stories from back in the day when they would do this for hours and hours on end, all of these different training methods. So this is the bricks we were talking about earlier. These are our lighter bricks. You're in a three-plane stance? Yes. Three-plane stance, bent at the knees, feet together. You can do supporting the sky, or swallow skims the water. And still the brick twist, or point and flex. So you don't have to be wealthy to do Chinese Sui Jiao training. It's very caveman style training most Just of the time. Get some reeds, some material, and fill it with lead shot, or grab a set of bricks somewhere, and, and you have a little bit of knowledge of the training postures and the right body mechanics, and the amount of strength that you get from this training, it's, it's pretty incredible. And it's an unusual strength. Not you look at a guy and go, well, that guy looks super strong. You're not going to know that guy's super strong until he grabs a hold of you. And then you're going, uh-oh. 
<laughs> I shouldn't have messed with that guy. <laughs> He's super strong. I think if you're just doing uh, traditional weightlifting, like at a gym, ben bench presses or something like that, you're only kind of building strength in a specific axis that's not necessarily uh, representative of like the weird off-balanced, mm -hmm. you know, I don't, there's like a word for that. There, there's some things that are hard to hold on to because they're just too soft or I, whatever. I think when you train with weights, you're changing your shape and you are increasing strength and you're changing your shape and you're changing your size. With the swag job training, you're really changing your functionality and you're changing your strength amount, increasing your strength and your endurance and the way that your body functions. So it's a little bit different purpose. If you want to gain size or have a certain physique, absolutely weightlifting. But if you're going after something functional for swai jiao or kung fu, then you probably should stick with the traditional training methods. You'll get a much better result. I say not a lot of Americans know about swai jiao. I don't, I'm not going to make statements about like Chinese. I don't know how popular or well-known it is there. But in comparison to something like Tai Chi, right? Tai Chi, I think, is pretty internationally well-known thing. A lot of people say, oh, like Tai Chi, it's not really a martial art. It's like an exercise for old people to do in a park or something. <laughs> <laughs> now, what I've always... And, and I'll be like, no, no, Tai Chi is like a wrestling Tai Chi's wrestling. They're like, what are you talking about? Tai Chi's not wrestling. But it's because I kind of grew up in this tradition where the, there's a lot of blending or crossover between Swai Chao and, and, and Tai Chi, right? Well, that's what we call uh, Grandmaster Chong's Tai Chi, uh, Chong Shi, Chong style Tai Chi Chuan. Chuan means fist, which means there's an application for all of the movements. And then who would be better at the application of the movements than Grandmaster Chong Dongsheng, undefeated national treasure of China. So for every movement in the Chong style fist form, there's maybe a half dozen, if not a dozen, different applications. So the Swai Jiao is considered to be the hands-on version of the principles that are embodied in Tai Chi. But Tai Chi Chuan has techniques, and they are employable, and they are self-defense techniques when they're sped up. Some of the training method is not just external training method, but train your energy, train your mind, train your chi. And, you know, some people don't think of that as being part of it. So Tai Chi Chuan has an internal and external, a hard and a soft, and it has a functionality in terms of self-defense too. The kind of combative aspects of Tai Chi, were those there from the beginning and, uh, and they were uncovered or they were added in? They were always there. And some people didn't know them, some people covered them up, and some people didn't want to emphasize them for one reason or another. So the applications have always been there, but some people just gravitated towards the form and towards health, didn't have any interest in the self-defense really, or the Qigong even. They just said, I just want the form because it feels good and it's good exercise, and I'm on board with that too. Okay, so let's just wrap it up, I guess. You know, we'll... we'll Let's uh, get some kind of formal wrap-up Sorry, here. we're in the middle of a podcast. It happened to run. That's awesome. I think this is as good as we're going to get it for the, <laughs> you know. Thank you so much, both of you, for uh, spending some time with me this afternoon. Let me crash your party.
<laughs> crash your crash your kung fu school. Uh, if you happen to be in central Ohio and you'd like to practice kung fu, you can check out mastermat.com with two T's. Master M A T T dot com. Mastermat.com. Master Malka's first name is Matthew. That's <laughs> that's why he has that that domain name. Uh, and your name once again? Uh, Tayo. Tayo Mareng. How do you spell that? T-A-I-Y-O. Yeah. And then like lemon meringue? No, it's M-A-R-A-N-G. So. Sifu meringue. It's a third level black sash or higher. It has the title Sifu at our school. Great. Well, Shay Shay. Bukashi. Thank you, everyone. Sai Chin. <laughs> Goodbye. See you next time. 